Hello and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. And I'm Steve Edelman. Steve. Steve, we're going to talk about training today and what you train for and, and many things. We've got an awesome guest, but I have to tell you, first of all, I'm having the best day because it's Furman University's spring break, which means we can use facilities for different things. And today I have a building full of police dogs who are doing training. And every once in a while, the best boy or the best girl in the world sticks their nose into my office and goes, <laughs> and I'm like, hi, I'm not allowed to pet you. All right, now we can get back to serious <laughs> stuff. But I am having the best day because every once in a while I get to see a dog. <laughs> Danielle, welcome to the world of working at home. I can pet a dog pretty much whenever I want. Well, so I remember that. I don't remember enjoying my dogs at home during calls because they would bark at everything. So this, I think this is what it must be like to have grandchildren. These are other people's dogs. So anyway, so we're going to talk about training and not just training dogs, uh, but, but training humans and what we train them on and all of that. And our special guest today is Phil, Phil Van Hest. Phil, you want to introduce yourself and say, you know. Yeah, hi, everyone. I feel like I've been dragged in here under false pretenses. I thought it was all dog training. But now you're throwing in this people thing. You know what? And I am going to have to get my. It's not. Oh, a lot. There's a lot of crossover. Okay. Well, (laughs) in that case, hopefully, if there are people listening to this, I guess, then they can you know, try to interpret uh, the dog training maxims uh, for their own human consumption, but that's on you because it's all going to be presented as if for dogs. Yeah. Yes. Phil, for I the people, try to throw them a bone too. Oh! <laughs> oh! going to be one of those pops. Off to a hot start. <laughs> uh, my name is Phil Van Hest. I'm the rigging and safety manager for Bigger Hammer Production Services Incorporated operating in the greater Los Angeles area. And I provide training of all sorts to all sorts and have been doing so for some time, writing my own programs, adopting those of others. I just finished writing up my authorized user fall protection certification, uh, you know, transferring it to the computer. Uh, it's so uh, annoying to live in this data entry uh, phase of human development where you spend so much time typity typing in the, Opt, you know, the idea is it's going to make my life easier, but it, in the at the moment, all the bugs, oh, all the bugs, trying to get something to auto-generate a certificate with no HTML experience is a nightmare. Anyway, that's where, <laughs> that's where I've wow. been this week. Hello, everyone. I'm 43 years old. I have two children. Uh, they're both homesick with me right now, and they're. <laughs> this isn't going to be a tough experiment because I told them, no, I need the internet. You can't watch TV. You have to color things and read things for an hour and be quiet. So we'll see how that works out. And you know, short podcast. You, you mentioned <laughs> you uh, had a dog training. I was coming through the airport the other day and they had a snipper dog uh, at the security check. And it was a very, you know, well-trained dog wearing its you know, police suit. And it had a police man sternly standing there shepherding it up and down the line of people. And you had to go two at a time, shoulder to shoulder. You had to walk this 20 foot path while it walked around and sniffed you. And I got to the front of the line and the police officer called break. And that was the dog's break time. It's not the human break time, it was the dog, dog break time. And he pulled out this tennis ball pull toy from his pocket and got down on the floor with the dog. And they rolled around and played with this tennis ball for two minutes. And then uh, a whistle blew and the dog and the man both stood back to attention and they resumed their duties. And I thought it was the cutest thing I'd ever seen. You know, and, and I wonder in all seriousness is like, sometimes I think we should do training more like that because I think we would get better retention and engagement if, if we build in playtime to the training. But we are- Podcast listeners, Danielle is asking you to send her tennis balls with string attached. Go so, for it. Go there for you it. go, eventsafetyalliance.org. <laughs> I have another tennis ball with string story, but it's not work appropriate. So we'll save it. We're going to skip maybe, that one. Maybe the notes. But so, that's a, a great segue uh, because, of course, retention and instruction is the is the big rubber meets the road. You know, I, I imagine that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about today because really writing up a program and following ANSI 490 and, you know, determining what you need to teach people and how to keep the records. 
you know, we could say all that in about 20 seconds and maybe I just did. But it's so, a part so where you then get them to use and implement that knowledge is of course the fun bit. Yes, Danielle, go all ahead, right. back, yes. So I want to talk about that. So there's a, a another podcast that I listened to, uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class. And they just did a thing, it was a NASA story about how food safety procedures developed and they were developed through NASA and they came up with a management system called HACCP, H-A-C-C-P. And, um, and I was like, this, this is something I should think about more because there are seven principles of HACCP. First, you conduct a hazard analysis. Then you identify critical control points. Then you identify critical limits. Where in the deviation from that excellence is acceptable and where do you have to stop? This again, this is all food safety. So you, they wanted astronauts to not have food poisoning in space because everyone could die if that happened. Four, establish monitoring procedures. How are you making sure that you know that you're still on track? Five, establish corrective actions. Six, establish verification procedures. And Phil's favorite, seven, establish record keeping procedures. And I was like, okay, this is all stuff that is incorporated into any industry, of course. Um, again, that's HACCP and it was developed by NASA and it, it's food safety worldwide now. Um, and I was like, okay, this is how we handle risk. We don't spell it out quite that way. But where it pertains to this is when we talk about training, how are we identifying what we're training on? Where in, where in our process have we decided that we're really gonna talk about lifts and friends, we're gonna talk about lifts a lot in this one. Um, Phil, any thoughts on where why we identify what we do? Yeah, first of all, of course, you mentioned my favorite record keeping and getting the dogs to write the stuff down is really, really fancy pens for dogs i've i found a paintbrush in the mouth with a easel in front of them is the is the, the best way but they're really hard to decipher i love your new acronym for nasa food safety procedures because they of course apply more broadly not just to dog training but to the training of people and they really get granular about how you approach the problem of who needs training, what do they need training on, how are we going to do it, how are we going to double check that they know it, how are we going to continue to monitor their process to make sure they don't need help along the way, what are the red lines that if crossed someone uh, blows the whistle, who's blowing the whistle, who's allowed to blow the whistle, are they allowed to blow the whistle during the opera, etc. Right, uh, isn't it great? I was so excited, I was like, ooh, I'm going to look at every problem this way now. <laughs> so the good news, I suppose, is that we're not sending people into space. And, you know, uh, our, our, we're, we've been slowly reversing the uh, show must go on red line towards the people must live uh, red line. So <laughs> it's, it's no longer uh, the life or death question has, has moved more toward or life or show. We've, uh, we've put life ahead of show now. So that's that's nice, and I've seen some great public examples of shows being halted or paused or canceled or moved because of life safety considerations. And I'm not sure if I've seen that in the past. If I did, it wasn't publicized, or it was just obvious. Like, no, the tornado blew the stage away, so the show was canceled. You know? <laughs> now we're doing. Now we're canceling it before we're canceling it beforehand, which is nice. Baby steps. So the good news is we're not sending people into space. And the other good news is that the theater has, uh, well, a million different specialties, but a few common problems. So I've been doing a lot of uh, rigging inspections throughout uh, the 50 states and encountering a lot of uh, theatrical issues as far as uh, safety and training programs are concerned. So the first thing I would do, I suppose, with the hazard analysis, as you mentioned, with the, the HACCP, is figure out what the most dangerous stuff is that your theater is doing and start there and work your way backwards to, no offense, costume crafts or something. You know, If someone's gonna run a needle through their finger, that's bad and you wanna train them to not do that. 
Um, but that's a treatable issue as opposed to the video wall crushed the choir uh, type of problem. So you want to identify the, the, the most, and there's of course charts you can use if it's not patently obvious to you what the most dangerous bits are. Your question, I believe, was do I have thoughts? Those were my immediate thoughts. I can continue to talk about training if you want, if you didn't want to direct me in any specific uh, uh, area. I think you mentioning the tennis balls and playing with people to get them to mm, retain or adopt the information because uh, at the heart of it, you know, we're trying to move away from the safety checks, safety box checking into mm -hmm. a, a culture safety uh, environment. And really right. that just takes time and repeated effort from management and administration and involvement on their part to set the standard, meet the standard, uh, lead, lead by example, and uh, offer people the chance to speak up and reward them uh, uh, when they do for reporting problems. Like um, there, there was a, a custodian that I met uh, recently who was in charge of the theater and he said that he had had uh, great success when a student reported a problem to him to saying, great, let's go find someone to clean that up and not making the student do it. <laughs> <laughs> and just a little, uh, just those little bit, that'll encourage other kids to report problems. And yes, of course, they will immediately abuse the situation, but I'd rather have abuse of the situation in over-reporting safety concerns than uh, an avoidance of reporting the safety concerns. And have I been annoyed at midnight by texts from employees saying that the lift gate on the truck is broken? Yes, uh, I have. But I would much rather that they report all this broken equipment and all this malfunctioning, uh, all these malfunctioning systems to me as soon as possible so that we can address them in real time. Um, theaters, uh, you know, if you're in charge of the building, you might be getting those calls from the fire department or whatever at two in the morning because the roof is leaking. But the good news is usually by the time the truck is loaded and out, you're done. In my business, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So as the safety manager, uh, I have a host of other uh, logistical issues <laughs> that I might need to address. But is the listening audience, they're production-based, they're theater-based, they're, they're all around entertainment uh, professionals. So the kinds of issues they're going to run into are going to be unique to each individual situation that they're in. And therein lies uh, much of the rub because it, often there's no, it's no one's job to write up a specific safety-based plan of operations and training for each show. You just rely on people's individual expertise. You hire the master carpenter, you hire the master electrician, you hire the head audio, and then you just let them manage their teams and rely on their expertise to not let the situation get out of control or to pick the people who know how to do the job correctly. And writing up a plan for a one-off can be quite onerous. Yeah. So I've something I've seen more over the last five to 10 years uh, than prior, dating myself there, but there it is. Um, I have seen much more interest in the one from the one-off from people involved in the one-off in, and including touring people in knowing at least the basics of the safety plan. What do we do if we have to evacuate? What And, and I've seen crews briefed on it uh, at a variety of levels and that is different. Uh, and I think it's a step in the right direction. Now, it's not quite the same thing as guaranteeing that everyone working at height has gone through MUP training or whatever, um, but it is addressing that one thing that you said where you have all these different, in essence, vendors, experts coming in at almost, and I'm not getting into the payroll part of this guys, but almost as independent contractors. They're separate entities. They may not be independent contractors, I'm aware of that. But I mean, they're, they're coming in as a specialist with their own niche and getting that sort of broad, training that frankly is not frequently time to run people through every single potential hazard training. Sure, uh, and when the Avengers assemble for the first time, it doesn't go smoothly. 
you know, it's a <laughs> lot of different egos and attitudes to contend with. And well, I usually smash it with a hammer. Well, I usually hit it with a, a missile. Like okay. I use the back of a wrench. I mean, I seriously. <laughs> I was doing a Thor and Iron Man thing, but yes, uh, you are you are correct. I was bringing it back. <laughs> One of the conferences we did, and this is tying back to what you were were saying. Compare, and this was a, a mental health issue, but they compared the entertainment industry to um, backcountry wildfire fighters and smoke jumpers, which are a group of disparate individuals who have the same professional background who are being brought together. Um, for a specific task that needs to be accomplished under a very tight timeline under high stress circumstances. And this was the closest parallel she could come up with to our industry. So, and she was using it from the mental health side, which we can certainly talk about um, to explain why uh, certain issues are such problems uh, in our industry. But the same could be said for the, this, the general safety mission and training and um, uh, for any gig, because you've got all the from the production manager and the tour manager, all the way down to the guys laying the carpet and the tent and the you know people the hands running the cable, who are at all levels of experience and how how to how to have a blanket template that applies to all of those things is just is just impossible. I mean, you you can make good faith efforts, but it's you're you're not gonna you're not gonna have a, a fine enough mesh on that template to catch everyone. So you want to do your best. Which so, so you two mentioned. things. Yeah. We could also try to compare ourselves to construction where you have a general contractor and you bring in a bunch of trades. And second, because that model already exists, that is part of what OSHA is for. And I've seen more and more states and companies requiring workers have had at least OSHA 10, if not OSHA 30, which I would strongly recommend to everybody listening to get one or both of those. Just uh, do it. Just, just go it, get it. What it what? Pause the thing, go do your OSHA 30 real quick, and then come back. Okay, no. welcome back. Phil, you <laughs> want to say what the unit of measure is for 30? It's not a, you know, put your coffee cup down and five minutes later, we'll see you back here. But we'll be here. No, no, I can generate these certificates for you very quickly. I just chat GPT, generate OSHA 30 card for Steve Edelman. Yeah, that that may not be quite the idea. What? But it does get some of that basic foundational training and safety training in, which is, you know, can be, have some nuance. So yes, OSHA, you met and you said you had, you were listeners, she was holding up two fingers. So was there a second? I just didn't want to interrupt you if you had the, a second. The first one was construction. Construction, okay. As another yes. analogous group of disparate They explain over and over again to the to the, the new hires, um, there is no entertainment industry standard for OSHA. And so uh, we operate uh, on the one side the, with the construction industry standard and on the other hand, the general industry standard. And then um, because I'm so clever and I have a bachelor's degree in theater, I say that entertainment treads the boards between. Oh, that's not fair. You can't hold a dog up into the camera. Now, not only are we distracted, but the viewers are, the, the listeners are deprived of seeing the cutest little What dog. I'm going to assume is a dog. I don't have any, I don't have a dog, so I'm not, not totally clear. It's a dog. What Podcast listeners. What just happened is my dog, Ellie, just jumped up on my lap and she is the sweetest little thing and she's giving me kisses. <laughs> okay. So entertainment is smack in the middle between uh, construction love- and general industry. And the way we've divvied it up is, or on my end of things, and I don't know if this is industry-wide, but during load in and load out, we call that the construction phase and we adopt construction industry standards. And one of those standards, um, the, the way that affects us most directly on my end is safety shoes, um, ASTM rated safety shoes, high-vis vests, ANSI class two, and uh, impact hard hats. We have those uh, for all the load-ins and load-outs regardless. And we do look a little weird in the ballroom with them, but people are getting used to it. Um, now, of course, general industry would be during the show, it'd be a little, look a little weird to sit at the mixing board with the high-vis vest and a hard hat, but there might be show considerations that require you to do so. Uh, it depends, and that gets back to what we're talking about. You know, what's the plan? Who's wearing what PPE when? And uh, one of the things that has I've seen more and more, and I'm so happy to be seeing it, is the 
the the toolbox talk the pre the pre-show general safety chat where we gather everyone together and this gets to the wildfire fighter smoke jumpers we're a team that day we may never we may have never seen anyone there uh, before that day we may never see them again but for those you know it's your saint crispin's day speech for those you know 5 to 8 to 12 hours you are a team trying to accomplish uh, a task together and you need to work together and support each other and uh one of the most significant ways i found to set as fine a mesh as possible on the safety chat is to make sure everyone knows the limits of their own understanding and capabilities within the scope of today's project and if someone asks you to do something that you don't know how to do or you're not sure how to do or you did once a few years ago but you don't really remember now to mention that and even if it's just even if it is your job that day specifically to climb that ladder and do that thing if you're like there's been a mistake because i am afraid of heights you shouldn't go up there all right phil i'm i want to push you on this because I don't do this kind of work, but I know lots of people who have different levels of self-confidence and frankly, different levels of need for their job. So what do you tell somebody when they say, I'm not saying that I can't do something because I won't get called next time. Or, you know, I haven't had that much training, but I need this gig. What do you say to them? Well, I say we're on a team and I try to hire based on aptitude and attitude. Certain hard skills are easily taught like how to use a ratchet, but soft skills like communicating with others openly about your level of skill is critical. And that that's perhaps management level. If they're concerned that they're gonna get canned because they tell someone, I don't know how to use this lift gate, um, can you show me what button to push? Then that's a higher level issue within their organization where they're not being made to feel comfortable or feel safe to point to point out that they cannot safely do this task, you know. And if that's the case, there wouldn't necessarily be anything that they can do about it except seek employment with a better employer who cares more about the safety of them and the people that they're working with. And how did they get hired in the first place? If it's if it's if it's that mission critical, you know, there are and that would just that would have been a miscommunication on someone's part. You know, we rent out. Oh, sorry, we we hire out. Uh, you know, labor at all all stages of experience from loaders and uh, pushers all the way up to um, you know camera operators, A ones, master electricians. So if someone calls looking for an A one. We try to do our best to say, uh, you know, what board do you have? What model year? Okay, we'll go find someone who knows how to run that board, who has experience on that board, who's comfortable taking that gig, and they both parties understand very much what the what the case is. So we don't run into those situations where someone feels like they must proceed. And I felt like that when I started twenty years ago, <laughs> years ago, uh, where if someone asked me to do something, I was. Uh, part of it was I was game, like, sure, I bet I could figure that out. Why not? Uh, yeah, let me in there. And what I'm telling people now is don't be, don't be Phil from 20 years ago. Tell someone I would love to learn. I haven't done it. If you'd show me, you know, uh, I'm sure I, I'm sure I can do it, but at least to get some base level instruction and not just jump in there and cause either a show, a show delay or worse, a safety hazard. Does, I'm not, I think I, I skirted your question politically, right? Because in real life, we're still going to run into these situations. Yeah, where, I mean, fake it till you make it. I mean, I think that's with the way a lot of people start in a new trade or a new line of work or, you know, with a new employer. We don't want to say, no, I can't, or I don't know how. You know, somebody assigned something. Yeah. And then you go figure out how to do it. But you know, we do have a lot of entry level uh, people who are coming in. We have different levels of confidence and experience within all of our teams. And what I'm telling them is that day, you guys are a team. You're not hoarding information 
based on some weird outdated notion that like this guy should know this already or you're mad because you're getting paid the same but this guy has less experience we're all there to help you know we're we're here to be the rising tide and please re remember your first day friend you know uh we're all here to get this gig accomplished together and if someone shows up green, I mean, especially during COVID and after just coming out of COVID, all this, a lot of new people coming in because a lot of people left. And it's a managing expectation situation. If you tell a, a stagehand, they're going to go load a truck and then they get there and the person wants them to strip paint off of old road cases or something, they're going to be mad because their expectations were not met. If you told them about it ahead of time, they wouldn't have cared. So if you make sure to top down, let everyone know that our company values openness and uh, honesty regarding your skill sets and values teaching people how to do things. And of course, making sure those people actually know the right way to begin with. Um, we try to build from the top down and the bottom up and meet in the middle to project uh, an air of, stre of stress-free <laughs> less stress and you're not responsible for this if you get there and you don't know how to do it that's not your fault we sent you there so call us call the office if the client is having an issue with you refusing to do something and that does happen a lot not just because they don't know how not because they don't know how to do it but because the client wants them to do something unsafe whether it's operating on a higher on a unguarded structure or something weird with the forklift I just had a chat about this where uh, if the client wants you to do something illegal with the forklift, in the past, people have said, all right, I'm not going to do that, but you go right ahead. And we're now, <laughs> we're now, we've pivoted away from that, at least when we're the ones renting the lift. If it's your lift that you own, friend, it's America. I cannot stop you. Um, but if it's my forklift, I'm not going to let you do it. I, I know I'm still skirting around what I think you're digging at, which is really outlier situations that we find ourselves in. And I'm erring on the side of admit you don't know what's happening. I We will not fire you. It's like a, it's like a whistleblower. You're whistleblowing on yourself. I'm not going to punish you for finding yourself in an unfortunate situation. And we want to get it out, get out of that situation as diplomatically as possible. And usually there's plenty of other people who can do the thing you can't do, who are on site. And I tell, and it's tricky because sometimes they don't know how to do it and they're not allowed to, like plugging in show power. If someone asks, you know, someone asks you to plug in show power, even if you know how to do it, I need you to tell them you got the wrong guy. You know, the house electrician or the ME is going to be responsible for that. I'll drag this four out all over, but I can't plug it in at either end. Things, things like that. We're trying to find those, those pinch points to let them know what they're allowed to do and when to admit they don't know how to do something. Uh, either way works for me. Yeah, I think yeah. also what you're saying is, is it's okay to fake it if you make it, if they've asked you to sew on buttons. Or coil a cable. Or coil a cable. And you're like watching your partners, see how they do it, and then you fake it. But there's a certain point where you've got to recognize that you're being asked to make a, a bear tail connection into a panel and you were there to coil a cable that that is not your job and you may or may not know how to do it, but that is when you need to escalate that particular thing up, up the food chain. Yes. And we have leads and crew chiefs who are on site, who are their first point, you know, who are more experienced hands who will tell them, no, you, you should know how to do that. I tell you what, I'll have Bill do it. And why don't you come over here and I'll show you, I'll show you what's up with this particular piece of gear. Or if, Today's a ladder day and you come over and you're like, I get sweaty palms when I'm on a ladder. Like, well, safety manager Phil does not want you on that ladder, regardless of whether or not you should be able to do it and you're supposed to do it. I don't want you up there because I have to work underneath you or around you. And, and I dislike filling out injury reports. Thumbs down. I mean, thumbs up to filling them out because they're going to need those for their workers' comp claims. But the part where I have to... Uh, do it is a bummer. Um, I, Steve, I hope I've been answering your question. Of course, it's deceptively simple question, right? But because it you're, speaks you're welcome. to all, all <laughs> levels of the organization. And it starts with 
expectations of the employees and trying to assure them that they will not be punished or suffer retribution for acknowledging their own shortcomings or lack of experience because they're going to, they're, they're, I, and I, try to, I try to help them by understanding that there are a hundred different specialties crashing together at any one given gig and nobody is expected to know all of it. So you're always going to be running into stuff you don't know how to do. And that's part of the gig. That's why a lot of people stay at it for years and years and years and years, because there's always more stuff to learn. So to embrace the opportunity to learn, obviously, if you have a recalcitrant individual who doesn't want to learn, then they're going to get fired. You know, and that's just, sorry, you know, you refuse to work that, well, that's on you. But if you're willing to learn and you have an aptitude for learning, then we'll certainly keep you on and keep training you. We're in the process of hiring a new uh, training entity. I'm not entirely sure what their job title will be, but the, I helped write the job description because um, it's a level of training that I don't have time to do. As the general safety and rigging manager, I don't also have time to run the full like uh, stagehand 101 uh, introduction to entertainment uh, safety stagehand business. So we have, we're, we'll have a person who's in charge of that and teaching everything from coil and cable all the way up to programming a board, uh, lighting boards and running a mixing board and helping our crew to achieve more competence and more confidence. Confidence, it's competence and confidence mixed together. Yeah, it works. definitely what it is. Thank so, you. Thank you everyone for coming. I appreciate it. That's our time. <laughs> So, so Phil, I, I did ask you a very difficult question. Of course, I did that intentionally. But you raised several points that I think are worth highlighting. Um, one is what you struggled to say seems really analogous to conversations Danielle and I have had in the past about front of house issues, where, you know, in a nutshell, we have said, it is incumbent upon the people who are planning for crowd safety and crowd management to deal with the crowd that they're actually going to have as opposed to the crowd that they wish they had. Because often the crowd they wish they had listens better, is more responsive, suffers from less confirmation bias, blah, blah, blah. They're just an easier crowd to manage than the one that's actually coming. It sounds like particularly in a coming out of COVID world, that is at least as true with backstage workers because of the loss of experience, professional judgment, people who are working jobs that formerly were held by people who had years of experience and training, maybe relatively new, if not brand new. And so just like with front of house, the planning and training that goes into getting all the production work done also has to accommodate the people who are actually there, not the ones that we wish were there or that were there up until March of 2020. The way I've been dealing with that on my end, because I'm sending those, the, the, the crew you're going to get I'm, I'm that I'm sending the crowd you're going to get. And we've worked with some uh, clients for decades and they know we're do we're going to send the best we can and they're going to work with them. And then we have some new people who don't know what a stagehand is um, or what types of things they do. Or we have uh, people who have been on the road for too long and they've had it with every, with their whole life. And there's a lot of stress and a, a lot of, um, because of the nature of our industry, a lot of people uh, are able to hide or mask uh, mental health and substance abuse issues for years and years and years until they finally blow up. <laughs> and what I tell the crew is if a client is yelling at you, or treating you disrespectfully or mad, just step away. Step away and find your lead 
or and call the office because there's been a miscommunication or they're having a meltdown. But either way, it's not your fault. Like I try to tell them to not absorb that energy because if they do, then it's going to come back out of them in a worse way and cost everyone time and money. So I misaligned expectations and having to work with the crew that you get, you know, we like to assume everyone's doing their best, but some people just want to find problems with things. And teaching, I guess the training program for like how you become a production manager or tour manager or a department head, there isn't, there isn't one. Uh, it's the school of hard knocks and you work your way up and then you find yourself you know, not, you know, not everyone is meant to be parents. Well, same could be said for people who wind up in management positions or having to be in charge of other humans. They're like, wait a minute, I don't like people at all. Why am I in charge of these people? You know, and then, and maybe they're the top of the food chain and they're like, well, heck, you know, they have no oversight. No one's going to tell them no. Uh, as long as they're getting the, the show on, the people who are financing it aren't going to care and who's going to report them and to who you know what's the who how do you how do you finding out how to report people has been a uh, uh, a fun uh, side hustle uh, for me as a safety manager because you have to know how to do it and to whom and in what way is going to be the most productive and not just um, a note left on somebody's desk but if you have a genuine concern, who do you report it to? And in what way do you report it? Like, hey, this person is engaged in uh, actions that are going to create liabilities for you. And if you're going on tour with them, I just thought you should know. There. Now, now it's up to you uh, as the person in charge to, you know, uh, discipline that person or train them uh, in the correct way to do things. I think I've gotten a little bit off track. So let me go, let me back up a little bit. Your question had to do with working with the crew that you have. So now we're talking to department leads and managers. And some people are cut out for it and some people aren't is my short answer. Some people wanted, want to teach and train and develop. Some people do not. And there might be people like me who do want to teach and train and develop who don't have time right now, <laughs> who just need to get this thing done so we can all go home. So why don't you stand over there while we do the thing and you can observe. Uh, uh, but I'm, And it's going to be frustrating, I guess. Tensions are still going to be high when you have a short time to accomplish any given task and a crew who's not up to it. And now the burden falls to you as you know, you're where the buck stops and you have this crew that can't hand you a buck. So what are you, what are you going to do? And I find openness in that situation works all the way from the bottom to the top. If I make an upper level management miscalculation, or if I'm handed a, a deck of cards, I can't use tell people immediately what's going on. Because if you, if you try, if you think, oh, I can probably do it, and then you can't, well, now it's your fault because now people are wondering what's going on. And it's the same, you know, I, I don't want to compare a, uh, a green crew to a malfunctioning scissor lift, but this is what I tell people at the, this, <laughs> what I, what I tell people at the beginning of their pre-shift, if you find, if your scissor lift works, but is kind of janky or drifts or the left turn doesn't work quite as well, tell whoever's going to be watching you what's going on so they don't think you're just a bad driver. So if, if, and I guess one of the ways we could discover uh, where we're at as far as the crew we have is in the pre-shift safety meeting. If you're meeting a bunch of people that you've never seen before, um, at least talk to the, to the crew chief, find out if they know these, if they know the folks, find out where that, what their skill levels are. <laughs> that can be easier said than done. You know, trying to do a snap uh, job skills qualification uh, interview at the top of a shift is not necessarily something that's going to be easy to do. But uh, one of the quickest ways 
I've done it is, is it, raise your hand if it's your first day today. Who, you know, we have a round <laughs> of applause for the, for the people who are first. And I stopped short of like putting a scarlet A on their helmet, but you know, at least then, uh, you know, the, the crew chiefs and the department heads can have an idea of how many new people they're dealing with on any given shift. And from a management perspective, if I'm sending out new people, I try to filter them in with the more experienced people and let the department heads know, hey, so-and-so, they've been trained, they know what to do, but it's their first day. So, you know, have them shadow someone who's more experienced. Yeah. Steve, man, you you have like 10 word questions for my thousand word answers. Lawyer. So your ROI Lawyer. is just incredible. <laughs> they, they train them for this in school. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I was listening, I was like, the things I'm getting is, first of all, know what you need people to know. Try to know who you're telling it to. And communication is key at all levels, including who you report it to, who you're identifying, and sort of a sit rep, like what's the situation right now, sort of status as the day goes on. Yeah, we can't progress without a clean situation report. And that applies to the people in charge of the whole thing and the people at the bottom who are packing the case. Like if the case is full, don't just keep piling stuff on top. Go tell someone, you know, that's an easy one. And then yeah. uh, the, the truck is going to be two hours late. Woof. Uh, you know, you're please, have please to don't put them. everything on the dock because a different truck's coming in. <laughs> is it different? Yeah. Absolutely. And fostering that, that, um, uh, culture of uh, team teammateship. What word am I searching for here? Fostering that culture of teamwork. Uh, I like teammateship. Do you teammateship? Yeah, <laughs> work workmanship. I'm going to share a Super Bowl analogy when you finish struggling with whatever word you're trying to create. <laughs> <laughs> So, so while you guys are giggling, he, here's a sports reference for you because, you know, you busted out Avengers and, well, I'm not a Marvel movie fan. Um, but they have this issue every year now um, in the NFL where for the Super Bowl and I think for the playoffs as well, they assemble all-star casts of their officiating crews. And these are the most highly rated officials who have been officiating NFL games all season. But now they're not officiating with the guys that they've been working with all along which is why you get things like "Uh uh-oh eagles fans are about to throw up into their mouths um, which is why you get flags thrown at the end of the game that well may be arguable slash shouldn't have been thrown because even though these guys are all individually the best of the best they do not have the experience working together so whether you call that teammateship or I prefer teamwork, um, the point is, even though people may have the individual skills, which is, you know, I suppose what you train for, you train each individual. When you put those individuals together, they also have to be trained to work collectively. And that's an, an additional challenge. So folks who are doing this kind of work that we've been talking about have to be both sufficiently subject matter expert in whatever trade that they are doing so they can perform the task and they have to have the further skills to be able to communicate with other people and they have to have the social skills to be able to say, Uh, this is kind of where I tap out because I don't know how to do this, or at least I don't know how to do it today, or I'm not comfortable for whatever reason. That's a lot. You know, that's like teaching little kids where you have to teach the whole child. You know, Phil Van Hest, it sounds like that's kind of the task of of a trainer for production people. Is that what you're doing? I would love to think so, Steve. What I love about your analogy is it highlights one of the main um, safety and injury speed bumps for any given production, which is there's no substitute for a group working together and building experience together as a team. You know, if you take any any show setup, 
for a one-off say, you know, it's going to take 10 hours for us to put it in. Oh, whoops, 12, because we messed that up. We have to take it down and put it up again. And then we, if we were to do that one-off as a do-off, uh, we could get it up in five, easy. But we don't have that luxury. And even groups that go on tour who are doing the same thing have to work with the crew that they get in each town that they go to. And it's kind of like doing it for the first time a little bit every time because they have to figure out which tasks they want to trust the locals to do in a vaguely unsupervised way. And we're not going to get that. The way that uh, you pointed out a lot of soft skill issues, um, you know, uh, what it made me think of was, um, you know, you, a, a crew shows up to strike a rehearsal and they just stand there waiting for instruction, um, which is good. But those of us who've been doing it a long time would know, okay, power's off, that's unplugged, instruments are away. It's time to just start unplugging everything and coiling it up, you know? And you could pretty confidently do that with, <laughs> with mostly anything. And maybe start off slow and look around in case anyone's going to start yelling at you about it. But uh, if you, but on the other hand, you don't want them to take initiative. You want them to stand around. Wait, there is a certain amount of uh, protection built into the extra time it's going to take to do anything because we're all there doing it for the first time. I tell you know the new people, uh, even if it's your first day and you had to raise your hand to say it's your first day. Well, guess what? It's everybody's first day for this event because it's never been done before and will never be done again with this group of people. Uh, you know, unless this is a long festival situation where multi-day load-in process, but even then you'll be at different stages. So every day, it's the first day for everyone. So to treat each other with respect and patience and to you know do your best. Yeah, it is like training children. Look, I understand you're mad. It's okay to be mad. Everyone gets mad, okay? Even the most Zen monk on top of the mountain who's been meditating for 50 years, I guarantee you, flies into a rage when his roommate leaves the uh, rice bowl in the sink without rinsing it first, because now it's going to be really hard to clean. You have to soak it again. But they have learned to process through the rage and to just maintain a calm exterior. But you're not going to stop feeling the anger. You're, you're, it's fine. Be mad. But you, you, you can't take that out on other people and uh, just ask for help if you need it. Take a break if you need it. But we're all here to work together. Teammateship, Steve. Teammateship. Hashtag teammateship. We're all on the same team. You don't have to like each other, but you do have to respect each other and work together. You know, side note, I tell, I warn the new people, you know, it's a salty culture. There's a lot of, a lot of language. Um, a lot of rough edges, um, and that's to be expected. But we will not tolerate disrespect between anybody when you're at work. So stuff it down and bottle it up. Take it out on your therapist. But uh, at work is not the time to vent your frustrations because we're all there. It's everyone's first day. And if, you're, if, you, if the question comes up, what is this guy doing? Guess what? He doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he doesn't know. And uh, the greater chance is that it's not their fault. They're not maliciously trying to slow down your loadout, you know. Um, and if they're just on their phone a lot, um, you can send them home or you can advise them. You know, I understand we're all on-call workers. We're all taking jobs, doing things, but not right, not, not right this second. It's not an emergency uh, for, for you. And if it is, Go to the bathroom. Uh, one of the things that I teach to keep stress levels down with clients is how to look busy when it's hurry up and wait. Because even if everyone knows there's nothing for you to do, they're gonna get mad because they're stressed out trying to figure out how to get you to how to get you to the point where you can work. They've got stuff to do. And if you're laughing and smoking and messing around, it's just going to make them mad. So if you're going to go do that, go do it. Tell the lead, hey, come get us when they're ready for us to work. We're going to be goofing off around the corner. <laughs> Fine, but don't do it where everyone can see you because it's going to make them mad. If it, someone is working and you're not, you can't rub it in their face. Because <laughs> so it'll cause stress. It's going to cause problems uh, for you. 
These are how I train. You're right, Steve. This is how I train people. And dogs. Never trained a dog. Well, you're on the right track. Uh, So I have to say, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with people in a wide variety of experience levels and locations and genres from from the corporate to the rock and roll. Uh, and I have to say the people that stick with it, the people that it's, it's not necessarily their first day in the industry, but uh, it's of course their first day on the gig. I internalized that message, but um, you know, there's a certain way we all sort of handle all of those things that I recognize in the, in the tips that you were giving It's like, you know, there's a certain thing about people that do live production successfully for a long time where we've managed all those things from the building that teammanship from the beginning. Teammateship. You know, even though even or though team personship. Working personship. Yes. Yeah, that's even better. Working uh, personship. Good. Good. You know, so, sort of finding those connection points <laughs> and banter right from the beginning makes the whole day go better, even if you've never seen them before and you'll never see them again. Um I also wanted to give a little bump to event safety access training, which is a ESA product that you can find on our website uh, that is entry level uh, safety awareness at live events. So we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. So you guys can check that out if that's something you have an interest in. It sort of complements the OSHA because it's, it's very industry specific. Um, and then I know we have a hypothetical conversation that we want to get into before we finish out, you know, and, and Phil, I don't know with you, but I know with me, I've been in rooms full of technical directors who have very strong feelings about the thing we're about to talk about. And ambush. That, uh, no, it's not an ambush. It's not an ambush. <laughs> um, it's just a lightning round. So podcast <laughs> listeners, if you've stuck around this long, we're going to briefly pivot to an actual question posed to me by email just this morning. So, and so we'll, we'll convey the answer to the person who asked it. In so, a lift. Yeah, right. And then we get into the conversation about what does OSHA require in terms of fall arrest, fall restraint, or nothing. And then and then the conversation devolves. So, so. <laughs> Let the devolution begin. So a fellow walks into a bar. <laughs> Ow! Should he have been wearing a harness? <laughs> so first, let's do some quick vocabulary. Let's do this quickly, but you know, quick vocabulary: fall arrest versus fall restraint. What's the difference? Sure, fall arrest is you're going to fall a certain distance and then be arrested in that fall by your lanyard and harness. And then restraint is a tether, a leash that prevents you from actually falling in the first place is the idea. So fall restraint, you don't actually fall. Correct. Fall arrest, you're falling. You're falling, buddy. You're falling. Super Bowl. You're injuring your... The performers in the Super Bowl were wearing fall restraint. They couldn't get to the edge. Of the platforms. Of the platforms. Yeah. Any any Disney parade you see these days uh, will have a fall restraint preventing performers from reaching a fall, a hazardous situation. Uh, roofers use this a lot. Okay. So that's the vocabulary section. We're that's, the, that's, that's the vocabulary thing. section. So now let's put someone on some kind of aerial platform lift, scissor lift, whatever. Confirm for us, Phil Van Hest, there mm-hmm. is not an OSHA requirement that one be tethered to said platform lift device, right? Correct. And of course, uh, what throws everyone off is that those lifts still have fall arrest anchorage in them. So WTF, um, why would the manufacturers go to this extra expense for no, with no legal obligation to do so? Well, so that, that raises a question. If there is not a legal obligation is it still a good idea? Because not every good idea is codified as law. So is it a good idea in your professional judgment as somebody who deals with not only OSHA, but safety generally, is it a good idea for somebody to be 
tethered in some way or another to said platform lift, whether it's legally required or not. Quick caveat, um, you uh, the, the read the manual for whatever lift you're using. Good start. Mm. Always understand what the manufacturer advises. Because that's what you're going to get dinged on. Uh, regardless, there's an incident. I think, and a lot of studios uh, who have a lot of contractors coming in using their lifts will have some sort of um, corporate requirement for you to tether yourself in some way to, and we're talking about scissor lifts and single person lifts here. Those are, because the boom lifts, you do need um, fall extra fall protection. Uh, so that's side, so that's separate. That, that part, I think we've all agreed you do need. So we're talking about scissors and single person. If you want to talk right. about booms and snorkels, we could get into that. I have a person. Right. So, so setting the scene, it's an individual person on, let's just pick one, a scissor lift. And there is not an OSHA requirement. We've established that. And let's say for the sake of argument that there is not a specification by either the manufacturer of the lift or the venue where the lift is being used. So now we're just at, is it a good idea? Um, it depends on how much you trust your, uh, the person who's operating it. So podcast listeners, Danielle Hernandez is giggling right now because it's Phil start. Always, it depends. <laughs> of course it starts with, it depends. But that's true. It depends on all of the circumstances that Phil is now going to enumerate. So Phil Van Hess, fill the airwaves with proper nouns. What are some of the things on which your answer depends? Uh, tow board, mid rail, guard rail, that's your fall protection. If you are not defeating the fall protection, there's no need for you to have extra fall protection. If you are, harnessed to the lift and it tips over that harness is only going to predict how far away from the basket your body is when they find it so if you were on a lift on an oil rig and it tipped over and you didn't want to also fly off the edge of the oil rig i suppose you might want to tether yourself to the lift uh, but those would be uh job site specific hazards that would be outlined in your job hazard analysis and all part of your working at height plan, which would include the rescue plan. Um, so it, of course, depends, but because of the guardrails in place um, and you are not allowed to climb on the guardrails, then there would be no need for you to uh, tether yourself to the lift. And even if you did and you fell off the side with a six foot lanyard, you could very easily just pull the lift on top, pull the lift over. So you would fall off of it, be hanging there, and then it would crush you when it fell over. So I've been personally hard pressed to find reasons to uh, wear a harness in a scissor or a single person lift while operating it correctly and safely. But if I was managing a venue, where we ha I had who knows who coming in there using them, I might require them to use a restraint lanyard that I provided, which would physically prevent them from harming themselves or using the lift in, in, incorrectly. If I wasn't going to be able to supervise them or have them be supervised, sure, I'd put them in a restraint that I had preordained the length of. So it would limit the scope of their job and their comfort while using it but really if you're if you're not <laughs> if you're not if your job is made is not made more difficult by a restraint lanyard you're using it incorrectly so and you would have to factor that in because they are going to work more slowly it is going to take a little bit more time in certain circumstances for them to operate safely if they're tethered into the machine so that's what i would do depending on the depending on the venue we do not require our uh, employees to wear them when operating uh, group A type three lifts on our behalf, but I've let them know that if the client or venue requires them to, then they should go ahead. Does that answer your question? It, it does. And I'll, I'll just throw in 
one more analogy because that's the way I think about the world. So when I read this question in an email this morning, um, the first thing that occurred to me is this has very clear echoes to the arguments I used to hear about people who did not like wearing seatbelts when they drove their car. And they said, well, you know, if the car has a crash, I want to be able to get thrown out the window to safety. <laughs> and <Right. laughs> I, I thought that was not a great idea because getting thrown out of a moving vehicle generally results in more owies than staying in the vehicle. Um, but it wound up being almost a freedom slash personal liberty argument where people didn't like to be encumbered and they were almost immune or deaf to arguments that a small amount of encumbrance would generally enhance their likelihood of a positive outcome if something went sideways. Um, so I was intrigued I by the question. I, I, I get the analogy, but I, I would contest that, you know, the hazards presented by the lift would be different from, uh, you know, the hazards presented by the velocity of a moving vehicle. The hazard you're trying to, let, let's take a worst case scenario, you're operating a scissor lift and you have a, a cardiac event and you, and you collapse. If you are not already standing up on the mid rail or the top rail of the lift, you're gonna, unless you heroically uh, throw yourself over the side while collapsing, will collapse in the in the lift. On the other hand, uh, if you have uh, just a chain gate on the back of that scissor lift, you could slip out of that pretty easily. So since 2017, they can't manufacture them with chain gates anymore, but they are still street legal. So uh, when I'm training people to drive them, I let them know that if it has a chain gate, that they're operating a more hazardous vehicle and it's still legal for them to do so, but they should be aware that they can much more easily kick stuff out the back, um, dropped object hazards, and quite easily slip out the back or step, step out the back because there's no tow board or anything. So for podcast listeners, I will tell you, I'll share with you my thought process on this. And you know, you obviously okay. get to make your own judgments because there is not a rule. Um, and you know, as you've heard from me ad nauseum, there is no best practice. Rather, what is reasonable depends on the circumstances, which is why Phil Van Hess started his answer with it depends. So Phil, I think that you articulated a really good basis for distinguishing when reasonable might include a harness and when it does not require one. And that distinction is, do you know who's operating the lift? And if you do, and you know that they can operate it in a safe way because you've seen them do it before, there is less need for them to have fall restraint. And if it's somebody that you don't know or is unfamiliar with the equipment for some other reason, then maybe the need is greater. But in any event, it's a judgment call. Is that fair? That's fair. And Danielle, I know you raised your hand, but I wanted to um, interject that, you know, if, if I put someone in a fall restraint harness to prevent them from climbing up on the rail, but they're the kind of person who's going to climb up on the rail, they're just going to take it off. They're just going to disconnect to go do that thing. So the training and then keeping up with the training, every, because of the safe use plan, all our operators need a supervisor. So all of the leads and crew chiefs have become uh, MUP supervisors. So, and the riggers are the worst violators of this rule. For whatever reason, they're always standing up on the tow board to reach something. You could just drive it up a little further, guy. Um, but to report them and to, now, now you gotta come in and redo the class because you stood up on the thing. We, you genuine, you like making, you have to enforce the respect for the guardrails because that's, that's what's protecting you. And if you climb up out of them, there was an incident, there was a, a, a gig re recently that I was at, fortunately, where the lift they rented did not go up high enough to reach the grid. It was just a couple of feet too short. So we went up into the grid and dropped vertical lifelines so that the operator could climb up onto 
uh, the rails of the lift. And if they fell, we had a rescue plan in place. So there are ways you can mitigate risk and work around these types of situations if you have a plan, but really having the plan is the part that everyone neglects to have. They unhave plan. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it just, you, you also probably have to have operators that have the ability to tell someone no, that they will not climb out of the bucket. Uh, and the restraint oh, gives them an excuse to say, I'm sorry, I can't reach that. By I certifying mean, them to drive a forklift or a mute, they right. have been authorized to enforce the rules to anyone who asks them to do something different and to call me at the first hint of uh, pushback yep. because explaining the law to clients is one of my favorite things to do. Well, since this is a training podcast, I should mention that um, at biggerhammer.com, you can find all of my training classes. They used to be webinars over the pandemic, but I don't have time for that anymore. Who has time to meet over Zoom anymore? So I've moved them all online. The ground rigging class, um, if you're local, there's an arena rigging class in person if you're in the Long Beach, Los Angeles area. And my MUP classes and forklift classes are all online. So they don't, and those are free. The rigging ones cost money for non-employees, but the, the MUP and forks are free. Now, this won't make you an authorized operator. It's very clear. You need to be uh, evaluated by whoever your employer is before you can be certified. But they are forklift classes. So they, they would count as the, the class portion of, and they're, and they're just free. Most places will charge you for them and I didn't want to get into that market and it started out just as for employees and then I thought you know safety should be open source the rigging I charge for because they're ETCP credits and it's the whole thing um, but um, the fork and mute ones are free so if you even just want to learn more about the mupes or you want to refresh yourself or what have you you can go there and take those classes and I've actually put a bunch of my employees through some of those videos so thank you for offering them they're a fantastic resource oh Cool. Um, Tyler DeLong also has a great uh, one-offs uh, training for uh, theatrical counterweight rigging because I was going to make some of those and then I found his and I thought, never mind, these are great. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for, for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Uh, if you want to send us an email, email is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Um, I will be at USITT next week, so come say hi to me. Uh, and I believe we also have people at NAM and several other events. Just, just look for us out in the wild. We would love to connect with you. Uh, look up the, the HACCP food safety protocol, you safety geeks out there. It's pretty cool. Hell yeah. <laughs> and thank you, everybody. Stay safe. You have to be dead to have a memorial. Yes. <laughs>